2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Professor Elizabeth Hinton, a historian, associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale University, professor of law at the Yale Law School. Her research focuses on the persistence of poverty and racial inequality in the 20th century. And she has a new book out. An extraordinary book it's called America on fire the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s professor Hinton welcome to the program thank you so much for joining us today there's a a cycle it seems you know like a dog chasing its tail of increased policing producing increased resistance and rebellion producing increased policing going back and forth can you explain how this works
0: Yeah, it's a wash, rinse, repeat. So there's a policy cycle where the response historically to various forms of violent political protest that is seen as criminal, that is not seen as being linked to a larger set of demands for socioeconomic inclusion and expanded access to jobs and education and decent housing, it's labeled as criminal and therefore the only solution becomes the police and the police and themselves, when we look at the history of this violent protest, end up inciting the violence. And so we're, we've, we've been stuck in this cycle of, of police violence and community responses to that violence. And also this cycle of policies that consistently invest in policing and surveillance and incarceration at the expense of or while disinvesting from social welfare programs.
2: I remember the 60s. <laughs> I was a teenager in the 60s. It was a time of great hope and yet great struggle, and you talk about how, what do you see as the starting point for this kind of modern version of history? I mean, does this go back to, is there a particular political trigger or uh, a moment in time, you know, Goldwater or Nixon's Southern strategy or something like that, Brown v. Board, or where do we start with this story in the modern era
0: yeah i mean of course we can go back hundreds of years but i think the 60s is is really important in terms of understanding where we are today and in many ways you know we're still living in the kind of aftershocks of both the violence in the 1960s i mean the so-called riots the rebellions between 1964 and 1972 coupled with the anti-war protest movement, but this was the largest, this is the, the moment of greatest domestic bloodshed since the Civil War, and we begin to see really important transitions in domestic policies. It is in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson, this is a year after he calls for the war on poverty, calls for the war on crime, begins an unprecedented federal investment in local police forces and court systems and prisons. For the first time in American history, the federal government started granting local police departments with taxpayer dollars, expanding police and militarizing urban police forces. And this set us on a policy path that eventually culminated in the U.S. being home to the largest prison system on the planet and a mass incarceration society. So I really think that the demographic changes in the 1960s, the civil rights revolution, and also the origins the rise of the modernization of policing and the criminal justice system as we know it taking place during this period really makes that decade a a pivotal one to understand where we are today and how we got here
2: having lived through that era my recollection of the way that when i was two three four years old in the early 1950s in detroit where my parents lived that entire community burned down in the riots in the detroit so-called riots riots and scare quotes were portrayed in the media at the time as basically black people misbehaving. My understanding is that every single one of these rebellions, essentially, as you're calling them in your book, talking with Professor Elizabeth Hinton, her new book, America on Fire, every single one of these from, you know, L.A. to New York and every place in between was triggered or ignited by police violence. Recalling that correctly?
0: You know, the rebellions in the 60s and 70s, for the most part, like Detroit in 1967, which occurred after the police raided a, a black speakeasy, occurred in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activity. Again, things that happened more frequently as police forces themselves expanded as a result of the war on crime. And from, you know, Miami in 1980, Los Angeles in 1992, and today— these forms of protests don't emerge in response to the policing of the ordinary and everyday but exceptional incidents of police violence or police killings and miscarriages of justice. But they are all rooted in an encounter between police officers and black residents who they are charged with protecting.
2: We have multiple forces that are all pouring into the same river, as it were. You've got the Brown v. Board decision in 1954, you've got the massive resistance campaign that was launched by white people in numerous states to stop the integration of schools throughout the late 50s and into the 60s you've got the rapid growth and widespread popularization is probably the wrong word but it became part of the public dialogue of the civil rights movement and the rise of dr martin luther king and others black panthers during that era as well and then you've got this white backlash that apparently began with lyndon johnson you're saying certainly you know richard nixon the Southern strategy. How do these, it's like a a dance. How do these things interact with each other? And what are the major parts that are still echoing into our lives and our society right now?
0: Johnson is is a really complicated figure in all of this, of course, because the programs of the war on crime are unfolding alongside the programs of the war on poverty as part of the great society and part of the sincere attempt on the part of Johnson and of other liberal policymakers to improve American society and to address the enduring problem of racial discrimination and, and inequality in America. But unfortunately, you know, the kind of punitive policies that Johnson introduced into domestic policies follow this kind of larger historical pattern that, you know, every time the bounds of citizenship expand and rights are extended particularly to to African Americans. We see new forms of criminal laws and the expansion of the prison system. We saw this of course after the Civil War when the Southern States almost immediately enacted a set of laws known as the Black Codes that criminalized newly freed people and, and essentially placed them in a new penal labor regime called the Convict Police System. This was the first mass incarceration and then Flash forward 100 years, 1965, Johnson calls for the war on crime one week before he sends the Voting Rights Act to Congress. And it was kind of a carrot and, and a stick, I think, of domestic policy where you know the, the, the programs of the war on poverty, which did not represent a structural transformation as the Kerner Commission noted in its famous report of 1968, did not go far enough in terms of addressing the root causes of poverty and inequality, but that was Johnson's attempt And the police and his increasing embrace of policing and surveillance programs in targeted low-income communities of color throughout the 1960s, again, as rebellion increased in intensity and frequency through every summer of his presidency, were about kind of managing the the material consequences of poverty and racial discrimination as they emerged through the persistence of rebellion and crime and violence in low-income communities. So increasingly, Johnson and other liberals, as the rebellions continued and persisted, came to embrace the programs and strategies of the war on crime as a kind of long-term solution over even the programs of the war on poverty. So when Johnson, you know, one of the the last pieces of legislation that Johnson signs on his way out of office, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, created the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration in the Department of Justice, which was kind of the more permanent formation of the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance that feared the early programs of the war on crime. But the Office of Economic Opportunity, that was kind of the steering office of the war on poverty, where community action grants were allocated, never received that kind of permanent implementation. And by the end of the 60s, you get police officers assuming many of the previous functions of the social welfare programs, the war on poverty. So ultimately, it is this kind of turn towards policing as the foremost urban policy, particularly in low-income communities of color, that is a legacy of the Johnson administration and that ultimately won out, and that Richard Nixon, as you mentioned, seized upon when he took office in early 69.
2: In the context of teaching, I mean, you're you're teaching these subjects at Yale University. I was reading from a Louisiana eighth grade textbook that tells the story of this poor white woman, not poor, she owned a 1,000 acre plantation with 120 enslaved humans. The struggles she went through as a result of emancipation and suddenly she had to start paying wages to people, oh my god. How do we fix American history?
0: And this is, of course, the question right now as critical race theory comes under attack. And I think when that term critical race theory is getting thrown around, people are essentially talking about teaching the history of racial oppression and exploitation and the way that racism, that American institutions have functioned through a racist system and through racial hierarchy throughout our history. So I think part of it is centering the role of racist exploitation and systemic racism in shaping the development of political and economic institutions in the US. And I think, you know, one of the things that I don't think, and many fellow historians would agree, that we have really dealt with enough in this country in our school curriculums, but also in our monuments in general, is really understanding the history of slavery, the history of dispossession and conquest of indigenous peoples in this country, and other histories of marginalization of racialized groups. We haven't fully come to terms with this and failed to recognize the ways in which even things like the voting suppression laws that we're seeing crop up across the United States today are rooted in this much older tradition of segregation and the systematic denial of people of color and black people in particular of the franchise. And so, you know, history to me is so important in terms of understanding how we got here, understanding the present and then being able to find a path to a more equitable and just future. And so if we're not telling the truth about our history, then we're never gonna be able to get there. We're never gonna be able to realize the founding principles of the United States and that the kind of lack of truth and obscuring certain parts of our history hurts us rather than helps us. It it keeps us divided and it, again, prevents us from being able to live up to the potential and the great promises of America.
2: Yeah, but somebody is profiting from that division.
0: It definitely continues to serve the interests of people who believe that the United States is a nation by and for white people alone. And I think that's kind of what the, you know, that's what these history wars, these culture wars are about. You know, what kind of country should the United States be, especially in a moment when demographics are changing substantially and and by the year 2050 white people will be the minority
2: right yeah and and uh, you know and there's a large chunk of people who want to want America to be a white ethno state Welcome back. We are uh, speaking right now with uh, Professor Elizabeth Hinton, historian, associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale University, professor of law at the Yale Law School. She has a new book out, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s, that is absolutely extraordinary. Dr. Hinton, to what extent is America still on fire? Where are we at now, looking back on where we've been, and how best, in your mind, do we move forward?
0: I think that the protests of last summer showed that we're still very much, again, living in the the kind of misguided policy responses to both the nonviolent and violent protests of the 1960s. And I think one of the things that my research really demonstrates and that many others have drawn our attention to is the fact that the decision to invest in the police and various surveillance technologies and the prison system at the expense of social welfare programs for people has been a domestic policy failure. It has not in our most vulnerable communities meaningfully made a dent in the ongoing problem of crime and, and gun violence. And The United States now, again, you know, our sheer incarcerating 2.5 million people is a major, major fiscal drain. It's much more cost effective to invest in things like early childhood programs and job training for people. And so I think that what we you know, what we saw last summer is a call among a rising generation of of young people especially who are saying we want a different mode of governance. This hasn't worked. That The pattern, one of the policy cycles after these events is always just to think about police reform. And I think one of the lessons is and what communities are calling for is that we move beyond the police because, you know, continuing to invest in police to continuing to rely on things like Body cameras, which we know don't necessarily stop police killings, the officers who beat Rodney King with night sticks and their fists said that they did so because chokeholds were banned in Los Angeles. Body cameras don't necessarily lead to more transparency and accountability, as we've seen in recent police killings and training. You know, we're not going to be able to train our way out of this. So. You know, the lesson here is that we need to invest in an entirely different set of resources beyond the police, giving people access to jobs and robust educational opportunities and decent housing and health care. These should be some of our priorities moving forward.
2: When you present this information that, you know, investing in communities produces a better response than investing in prisons, there yeah. is basically one political party in America that is saying, no, well, we don't want to do that. That's going to raise up uh, people of color more than white people, and we want America to be a white ethno state. How do we deal with that? Well, I think part of it
0: is realizing, you know, how these investments impact all of us, that, that when that, you know, robust, robust school systems for low-income kids in, in urban areas, if, if we're pumping money into public schools, will also benefit white kids in rural areas. And so different spending priorities and a more equitable distribution of resources doesn't have to do with race, but has to do with addressing the widening wealth inequality in our society.
2: Oh, Amen. Professor Elizabeth Hinton, the new book, America on Fire. Brilliant. Thank you so much for dropping by today to discuss it with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's been a
2: pleasure. My pleasure, too. Thank you so much. Twitter Joshua Benton is pointing out two approved Louisiana history textbooks for the eighth graders in that state. There are only two, apparently, at least according to this fellow who's pointing this out. Christopher Reeves over on Daily Kos took that and did a little research and built it into a whole piece. Welcome to eighth grade textbooks in Louisiana and the story of poor Kate Stone, writes Christopher. And then this is from the book. So you're an eighth grade student in Louisiana. Imagine if you were a black eighth grade student in Louisiana. And this is your history book, right? And it tells the story of young Kate Stone, right? A young woman who lives on a, a young white woman who lives on a plantation. Well, I'll just read you from the textbook. With more than 1,000 acres and 150 slaves, the family's future seemed secure. However, in 1861, after Louisiana's secession from the United States in January and the beginning of the Civil War in April, the lives of everyone on the stone plantation changed. Now, how did they change? Well, we ended slavery. Poor Kate, right? What's this poor white girl who, you know, her family owns 150 other human beings, holds them in enslavement? What's she going to do? Well, the textbook fills that in. They were able to reclaim their plantation. This after the Civil War. But due to emancipation, parenthesis, the freeing of the slaves, close parenthesis, They lost all of their property in slaves. Yes, actually, the majority of the wealth that the South held was humans. Just let that sink in for a minute. It wasn't their buildings. It wasn't their land. It was the humans that they held in bondage, in slavery. Back to the textbook. Kate Stone's family, they were able to reclaim their plantation, but due to emancipation, the freeing of the slaves lost all of their property in slaves. The family had to face the new reality of planting and harvesting their fields with freed people who Kate regretted, you know, young Kate, the white girl who lives on the plantation, who Kate regretted now demanded high wages. Oh, my God. We're running a cotton plantation and we've got to pay our workers? This is a disaster. This is an eighth grade Louisiana history textbook lamenting the loss of slave labor. Well, not to worry, Louisiana citizens, you still have slave labor. The 13th Amendment did not end slave labor in the United States. It merely compartmentalized it. No, seriously, I'm, I'm not making this up it's an absolute actual fact let me find my little handy u.s constitution and i will read to you the language of the 13th amendment and uh, here it is this was ratified on december 6th 1865 neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the united states or any place subject to their jurisdiction So slavery may not exist in the United States any longer after 1865, except, and thus, you know, the largest, I believe, parchment is in Louisiana. It used to be a massive cotton plantation. It's now a massive prison, and they're still working the cotton. Anyhow, back to the textbook. And poor Kate. It is, and this again from Joshua Benton's tweet, J Benton, at J Benton. It is impossible to understand the years between 1820, and this is from the textbook, between 1820 and 1860, without appreciating how the state's people shaped one another. Free and slave, native-born and immigrant, though Louisianans did not always interact peacefully. They shaped one another's lives, fortunes, and cultures. Gee, you think? Christopher Reeves over at Daily Kos adds a a little punctuation here. Look at how great it was before they elected Lincoln and went after slavery. Damn it, things were going great. We just stole our heritage, made music of it, and forced them to work for free, and it was great. But that civil war had impacted everyone's fortunes. Well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the idea, wasn't it? Okay, so we've got that. And then we've got the legacy of that. This from newser.com, a story by Evan Gastaldo. the headline, he was lying on the couch when police burst in, shot him dead. Johnny Lorenzo Bolton was lying with his eyes closed on on a couch in his apartment near Atlanta when police serving a narcotic search warrant. Why do we even? Well, that's a whole nother thing. When police serving a narcotic search warrant burst through the front door with guns drawn and no warning. Bolton stood up, and at least one of the officers fired, sending two bullets into Bolton's chest. The 49-year-old black man died from his injuries. This is like the Breonna Taylor killing in Kentucky. Bolton's relatives and their lawyers wanted to try to get information about the shooting from law enforcement before drawing attention to this killing. But frustrated in those efforts, the attorney sent a draft of a lawsuit to Cobb County officials in mid-April along with a letter threatening litigation if county officials didn't provide more information and address accountability and compensation for Bolton's death. Bolton's sister Daphne, in a recent interview with the Associated Press, said, for almost six months, we gave them quiet. That lets me know that's not what's going to get a response. In other words, quiet doesn't get a response. She says, I want my brother's name to ring beside Brianna Taylor's. When they say Brianna Taylor, I want them to say J- Brianna Taylor and Johnny Lorenzo Bolton. I want them to be simultaneous. She also, by the way, wants an end to no-knock warrants. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's put a national end to no-knock warrants. Finally, Congress is looking into January 6th. As you know, this is the House Oversight Committee has been holding these hearings. They held a hearing with FBI Director Chris Wray and with two generals who were in the Pentagon responding to the demands from members of congress saying please send help michael flynn his brother what's his name charles flynn lieutenant general walter piatt i believe it is p-i-a-t-t but on a 2:30 p.m conference call this is from talking points memo by the way .com. on a 2:30 p.m conference call according to dc national guard notes the panel obtained so this is information that congress has Lieutenant General Pyatt said that, quote, a military presence could make the situation worse at the Capitol. And the sending in troops would not be his best military advice. It turns out that five different times, the Pentagon specifically, while the Capitol was being ransacked, while a crowd that had built a gallows outside of the Capitol was rampaging through the halls, smearing feces on the wall and damaging priceless paintings, chanting, hang Mike Pence. While another branch of that crowd was running around going, here, Nancy, where's Nancy? As one of their members told the press, we intend to put a bullet between her eyes and her forehead. While that was going on five different times, the Pentagon said to the National Guard, stand by you know there needs to be absolute hell to pay for this absolute hell to pay for this and now by the way now down in arizona a whole nother bizarre thing this is what happens when you let psychopaths get away with psychopathic behavior the tweet that started this whole thing about louisiana textbooks it was originally tweeted by Joshua Benton. And then Philip Lewis jumps in. The book, the actual book, you can find it over on Amazon. This is the uh, Louisiana textbook for eighth graders. It's called Louisiana Our History, Our Home by Alicia P. Long. And uh, like I said, it's on Amazon. So Philip Lewis takes a photograph of some other content of the book. We're again telling the story. Uh, amanda stone mother kate stone her young daughter who owned this plantation in louisiana another you know, two paragraphs from this i had read you what was the last sentence of the second paragraph before but i hadn't gotten i didn't have the whole context we're learning more as in real time here In an attempt to limit her losses—see, this is now the Civil War is happening. This is the Louisiana slaveholder family, the Stone family. In an attempt to limit her losses, Amanda Stone sent 120 of her slaves to Texas in 1863. She and Kate were forced to follow the slaves to Texas later that same year. In the family's absence, the few remaining slaves took over the plantation and moved into the family's home, dividing the rooms and the Stone's remaining personal property among themselves. The stone woman would remain refugees, parentheses, people who are forced to leave their home or country, close parentheses, until the end of the war in 1865. Also, they were able to reclaim their plantation, but due to emancipation, parentheses, the freeing of slaves, close parentheses, lost all their property and slaves. And the family had to face the new reality of planting and harvesting their fields with freed people who Kate regretted now demanded high wages. This is friggin' breathtaking. I get it that for white kids, this is very safe and comfortable stuff. Can you imagine being a black kid in a Louisiana school and listening to this? This is the history of our state. We're going to tell you all about it. You're going to actually know what's going on. Okay. First of all, my apologies to Arizonans who know how to pronounce this county's name, because I don't. (laughs) It looks like it's Yavapai. It's Y-A-V-A-P-A-I. So I'm going to say it that way. And if I'm wrong, you know, call and correct me. But people are knocking on the door. This is from Arizona Central. This is the Arizona Republic, their newspaper. People are knocking on the doors of Yavapai County residents and asking how they voted in the last election while falsely claiming to represent the county recorder's office, sheriff's office officials said. Yavapai County recorder Leslie Hoffman says she does not know if the people knocking on the doors are working on behalf of a political organization, but raised concerns that information residents provide could result in identity theft. I don't want some of our more vulnerable residents giving information and thinking they're giving it to the recorder's office, she said. She said, local officials have received reports of several incidents last week, two incidents last week, in which people claiming to be from her office asked voters if they voted in the last election and who they voted for. The Senate's contract with Cyber Ninjas, this is this Florida-based company that has never audited an election before, said that a, quote, registration and votes cast team, end quote, as I'm reading from the Arizona Republic, has already worked with several people, quote, in order to statistically identify voter registrations that did not make sense and then knock on doors to confirm if valid voters actually lived at the stated addresses, end quote. This is so over the top. I mean, this is like knocking on somebody's door, asking them to provide identification to prove who they are, so you can steal their identity, I suppose, I mean, you could. They're saying that they're trying to do it to, to verify a ballot that looked suspicious. And then asking them for whom they voted. Who did you vote for? So we can tell if their ballot got changed. Is that the deal? I'm guessing that that's the deal. We'll find out as time goes on. This is just like so, so very, very, very wrong. Jesse in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Jesse, what's on your mind today?
3: I taught for 37 years in Atlanta City schools, and at least in the last 20 years, nobody ever looked at textbooks. God. They were just in a pile gathering dust. So
2: what, what do you, how do you teach?
3: Well, I mean, you know, teachers get stuff offline and other stuff. Uh. A lot of times the textbooks don't teach the standards the state wants us to teach.
2: Well, that's interesting. So you've got a textbook mess, basically. I have told this story before. I still remember when one of my kids was probably eight years old. We had just moved to Atlanta six months before from New Hampshire, actually. It was 1982, I think. And one of my kids came home from school, and we were having dinner, and I said, what would you learn in school today? And that child said, we learned about the War of Northern Aggression. And which is a phrase that I had literally, having grown up in Michigan and lived in New Hampshire, I had never heard in my life. Gail in Seattle. Hey, Gail, you're a history teacher, a retired history teacher.
5: Yes, indeed, I am. And your uh, last caller is 100 percent right. But one of the things I wanted to say, besides being totally appalled from the reading of that vignette from the Louisiana history textbook, (laughs) You know, kids, you're saying how tough that would be for a black child to hear that or to read that. But I also think that the 1619 Project misses a point, although were I still teaching, I absolutely would use that curricula. It's important to not start teaching American history and slavery with images of a people who are disrespected, brutalized, and degraded. You have to go back to the pre-colonial great kingdoms of Africa, Kush, Mali, mm. Carthage, Ghana, and bring that up uh, an important part of what Africans in America are and where they came from. There is nothing worse than to have a class full of black kids and the first image they see... You know, maybe after the on the Ken Burns video of the Civil War are pictures of naked slaves on the post or the pictures of brutalized individuals who have scars from the number of beatings they have. so my point is is that don 't start with slavery and degradation, but I also wanted to say. I'm concerned about what teacher preparation is now looking at in schools. So, um, we know, two things that I have always used and teachers that I have respected have always used is the point of view and primary documents. So, for example, I would use Frederick Douglass's What is the Fourth of July to the Slave? Mm -hmm. And also um, things like the John and Abigail Adams correspondence. In terms of, don't forget the ladies. Right. There's so much. We
2: are we are determined to foment a, re- a rebellion. If you yes, uh, pardon my interruption. Absolutely, interrupting.
5: absolutely. No, but again, just to um, summarize, don't start the history of Black people
2: in America. Yeah, if I can put brigade, a if I can put a, a punctuation mark on that, um, I, I think it's it's not just the history of Black people in this country as well. Um, when, when white people came to this continent, we committed the largest genocide against Native peoples in the history of the world. I mean, we killed Absolutely tens true, of millions. And I think that Native American history needs to start with, with textbooks like Peter Farbe's Man's Rise to Civilization and the Native Americans, um, where he went back and looked at pre-contact with, or at, at first contact with, with uh, white people, um, how 34 different cultures uh, it fully developed. I mean, his his uh, his chapter about the Shoshone in Nevada, for example. Mark Twain uh, took a train through Nevada, and uh, the Shoshone have a population density of about ten people per square mile. Very, you know, small bands, right? Because um, it's desert. And and Mark Twain called them, uh, you know, the, the the most horrible, wretched, primitive humans. You know, I mean, he just trashed them. But in fact, as as Farb points out they had uh, far I, I remember one particular phrase from his book it's been 20 years since I read the book but it always stuck with me he said their culture was as elaborate and rich and filled with ritual as was the culture at Versailles Absolutely. Louis XIV culture is culture cultures are always rich and Native American cultures were rich cultures Native African cultures were rich cultures there were kingdoms there were hunter-gatherers the San, the kung, all of these people should be introduced to students of all races you know american students i agree with you before we then say oh and then here's what we did to these people and then we can get into a conversation about how do we make this right what do we do about that now does that all make sense gail
5: it makes total sense to me. And I always began my history classes as kids came in the first day of, of school. I have this old map that belongs to my husband, who's an archaeologist. And it is an old map of all the linguistic groups across both Canada and the United States. And it's overwhelming. There are thousands of them. Yes. And the, and it was really important for kids to understand what was here. This was not discovered this was a rich and diverse group of human beings whom uh, were brutalized and decimated by colonialism.
2: Yeah, they sell that but, map um, or a map very much like that at the Native American uh, Museum uh, in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Uh, Louise and I bought one. I have no idea whatever happened to it, but it was mm-hmm. it was a, every little nook and cranny of America was mm-hmm. filled with uh, different people. <laughs> I mean, you know, different uh, language groups, you know. Uh, different societies. Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. But anyway, my point is, is that I fear for our future if we're going to change the thinking of americans how can we do it if they're walking into classrooms and having this dribble
2: yeah i'm with you i'm with you gail thank you thanks for uh for your perspective and that was such an important point you made such an important point we need to not only teach what we call history we also need to teach what we call prehistory which really shouldn't even be i mean even that is a denigration of it gail thank you that was brilliant keno in lakeland florida hey keno what's on your mind today Uh, Tom, along the same
1: line about textbooks and what's taught in history and so on, I've been hearing about this critical race theory. Mm. Oklahoma just banned it being taught in their schools, and in Florida, the governor's proposing that it not be taught in the history lessons. Now, one man said that uh, James Carville, the Democratic strategist, said that uh, Democrats showing sympathy for critical race theory is going to drive the middle class, the voters in the middle, the moderates, to support uh, law and order police uh, Republican policies because he said that uh, this critical race theory means uh, give black privilege now and show favoritism to all black people to make up for past wrongs and Dr. Martin Luther King is disregarded when he said we can judge character, the critical race theory people say that uh, Dr. King is useless and outdated and his idea that we can judge character yeah.
2: Keno you, uh, you are not accurately characterizing critical race theory, first of all, you're, you're repeating basically right-wing talking points the problem critical race theory has been around for more than 20 years in, in academic circles it is an attempt to understand how race and racism have helped to construct our contemporary society you know why is it that for example when highways were built in cities that they almost always tore apart black neighborhoods to build those highways. Why is it that when they built uh, belching uh, coal-fired power plants that would pollute downwind communities, that those downwind communities were always black? Um, you know, just at the simplest level, right? It's that kind of stuff. How does how, how, how do our systems and our racism interact with each other? Um, critical race what- theory... Uh, broadly doesn't is is not but but you know James Carville's point is that when democrats uh that what republicans have done is they're cherry picking a phrase that 99% of white americans have no idea what the hell it means and they are attributing and republicans are attributing a meaning to it which people are adopting and it's a me- it's a pejorative meaning it's a negative meaning uh that they're attributing to it um, yeah go ahead you um,
1: what w- one lady who uh, advocates Critical race theory told me that uh, anybody that disagrees with critical race theory is full of. She used a nasty word, yeah. and, and and that uh, in critical race theory you cannot debate, you cannot. Disagree. No, none of that's
2: none of that's true, Keno. This is the word theory is in there, sort of like theory of evolution okay, we all agree that we evolved, but is yep. it punctuated evolution like Stephen Jay Gould p- proposed? is it gradual uh-huh. evolution like like Darwin proposed? you know critical race theory is is a is a framework with it in which academics have debates. It has been hijacked now by Republicans. I think Carville to an extent is right that the right has successfully, rebranded this to the point that it's impossible for Democrats to use that phrase in a way that is not going to be misunderstood. It has been a very successful rebranding effort by right-wing politicians, white right-wing politicians. I think he's accurate about that. This is an academic debate, a discussion, context. Oh man, this is, I mean, that we're even having this debate is, is nuts. Tom Hartman here with you and Michael in Las Vegas. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today?
4: Hey, Mr. Hartman. Well, first, I just want to thank you again for the wisdom you, your guests and callers, impart on your viewing audience. I appreciate it. It really is invaluable in this day and age. Thank you. So I want to take issue first with Betsy, who called earlier and kind of chastised you for using the word psychopath or psychopathy.
2: Yeah, she said I was name-calling.
4: No, that's not name-calling at all. It's scientific, medical, turns you know know. it's based in science so don't feel bad about that at all please and i hope that she realizes where she's a little you know twisted there Mm -hmm. um just ask dr frank yes Um, i'm curious have you ever heard of the dark triad in psychology
2: uh it's a it's a constellation of specific symptoms that point to uh what is it was nar- a there's narcissism this, yep. is, this is the psychopathic uh this is the beginning the foundation of the psychopathic profile isn't
4: it well psychopathy is um included amongst the um three negative
2: personalities okay, then, then explain I'm it to, it to me time. because i don't i'm, I'm sorry well, i don't I, yeah go for no it.
4: you're fine i'm just going off i've been in counseling since i was in middle school when my parents divorced and I just took a psychology course in college, I wasn't Mm -hmm. a major, but I find it very interesting like you. Um, so it's a trio of negative personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. Mm. And the three of those, um, share some common traits and people with the traits tend to be manipulative. They're willing to say and do anything to get their way. Um, You know they have a
2: uh, Donald Trump.
4: Let's talk about all Republicans. (laughs) I mean, for the most part, you know the ones that don't want to tell us the truth and have you know inflated self or sense of self, shameless about self promotion. I mean
2: Jeffrey Epstein.
4: Yeah, I, I mean seriously, the the thing that you brought up with you know Fortune five hundred companies, big corporations. I mean, like they'll even. Get, there's a test for it. You can search it online, just look up, you know, dark triad test. Mm-hmm. And it's usually between, like, 20 and 40 questions. Luckily, when I've taken it uh, several times, I'm always, you know, only in the single digits mm-hmm. or, you know, teens of the three, narcissism, machiavellianism psychopathy. Um, but absolutely, I I have to believe that just purely based on this information the majority of the republican party nowadays fit this profile perfectly i, I mean it uh, is
2: among elected officials yes
4: oh absolutely and and, I mean,
2: and it's drawing them in by the way this this is the, the whole that my whole freak out in this article that i wrote today at hartman report which was my opening rant is that Trump has opened the door to these people in the Republican yes. Party, and they are flooding in and running for elective office all across the country, even at, at the level of school board and city council, um, the actual genuine psychopaths. And, and coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, it's become the Republican brand. Michael, I got to yeah. run. But thank you it, for the call. Air- yeah, yeah, it is scary. I agree. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today?
3: Well, Tom, I, I had no intention on speaking with you today. I was just enjoying your program as usual. However, you had a conversation uh, with one of your listeners that uh, made me almost pass a stone, as they say. Uh, a gentleman speaking about uh, critical race theory. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and he had uh, mentioned that, uh, and he had attributed it to James Carville, whom I'm familiar with, Uh, that uh, white people were basically, and I'm paraphrasing, going to rebel if this continued to be taught. But I have some news for that uh, gentleman. Critical race theory has been taught in the United States for hundreds of years. I was taught critical race theory. It simply was a different race. And so now to hear uh, a European-American basically threaten extortion that if this, uh, th- that we've enjoyed historically, uh, if there's some fairness brought to it that we're suddenly going to uh, uh, act in some way that is adverse uh, is the very reason why it needs to be taught in the first place. Yep. Secondly, secondly, I want to say this, Tom, you know, uh, and I know that you're a professional wordsmith just as I am in different ways and our thoughts come to us through words. It's like you have this, uh, I think you call it a chiron, that goes through your head. Before you, before you think something, you see the words in your mind. I guess I do. It, right? mm-hmm. And then those words control your thoughts. Your thoughts control your actions. And I don't think that anyone's really drilled down into how deep this is, particularly, particularly when it comes to black people in the United States. Critical race theory is simply what's be, been being done for hundreds of years turned on its head.
2: I can't disagree with you. Kino was basically echoing Fox News talking points and Republican talking points. I am convinced that the GOP's central focus has now become creating and, well, not creating, because we've always been, maintaining... The United States as a white ethnostate, as a nation where whiteness is the primary definer of who gets power and who holds power and all the things that flow from that, including wealth and, and social status and everything else. You know, they're not going to go down without a fight, Ken- uh, Kenyatta.
3: Uh, Tom, uh, listen, you know this better than I do. If you want to, uh, it's happened time after time. Here I am in my in my 50s. And I'm watching, and I, when the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were passed, I was a toddler. It is amazing to me that half a century later, better than that, I see this country going through the same connections over the same issues abortion, Roe v. Wade, the same, it, 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 it's the same crap, but a different smell. And anytime but so you there's want a to a mountain,
2: I'm sorry. Finish, finish your rant, and then I'll I'll jump in. Oh,
3: I, I guess any time you want to amalgamate European-American racism in this country, all you've got to do is play that law and order cor- card. The Negroes are going crazy. They're just burning and shooting. And, that, and there you go. And it, it has worked 100% of the time. Why would they not do it now, sir?
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And there is a thread that ties all those things together, whether it's abortion or whether it's, you know, the the right going hysterical about teaching the actual history of racism in the United States and what structural racism is and and helping, you know, little white kids to understand what the actual history of this country is. And that thread is uh, basically white male patriarchy. It is, uh, Louise and I were talking about this this morning when I was walking into work, the Roman Empire reinvented Jesus and his teachings and God, literally for that matter, uh, reinvented God as a Roman emperor, an angry, easily offended Roman emperor. So we've had 2000 years, And a racist Roman Empire, (laughs) That, by the way, you know, my people, only my people, every, you know, kill the other people. And so we've had 2000 years of this kind of indoctrination in, quote, Western civilization. It's just pouring out all over the place. And now that social order, patriarchy of hierarchy and of and, and in the context of those of a racial hierarchy that is being challenged. And yeah. it has been being challenged, obviously, for, you know, hundreds of years in the United States, but seriously challenged and particularly yep. demographically challenged, as Professor Hinton pointed out, you know, that by, by yep. 2050, it's, you know, it's, uh, whites will be a minority, an absolute minority in this country right now at birth, they are.
3: If I may interject. I think that it's also uh, slowly but surely also being globally challenged.
2: Yes, I agree. And by the way, the, uh, if you look at what's happening right now in France, what's happening in Sweden, what happened in Hungary 15 years ago, what you see is that inflows of immigrants of color, and this is, you know, as a consequence of the Arab Spring and global climate change, I mean, we can go through the whole thing, but inflows of, of people of color are freaking out the white people. And that's bringing in the white right yeah. wing, the rise yeah. of the, the neo-Nazi movement. I mean, yeah. Marine Le Pen may well uh, beat Macron yeah. in the next election, uh, or whoever it is, in the next election and become the president of France. you got a huge well, Nazi you see movement. It in,
3: in the recent government that has just been uh, put together in Israel, uh, even though it's a coalition government, there's some serious right wingers there. You see it. And this guy in Brazil, he's completely, yeah. I Bolsonaro. Mean, and, yeah and Donald Trump will have a second term. It may not be Mr. Agent Orange, but he's got clones, and they're going to take the form of Tom Cotton. His kids are running for... Let me yep. tell you and something. And Rick Scott. And this is, and yes, sir. Well, anyways, Tom, thank you. I'm just, I appreciate you so much for what you bring to the Back table. Back at you,
2: Kenyatta, and, and uh, I love reading your thoughts over at op-ednews.com and other places as well. Thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. All righty. So let me, let me share some other observations with you. Monday, June 7, we had uh, a mass shooting in Homestead, Florida. Monday, June, also on Monday, a mass shooting in Cleveland, Ohio. Tuesday, you had mass shootings in Houston, Nashville, and Memphis. Thursday, you had uh, mass shootings in Yonkers and Detroit. Friday, you had mass shootings in Dallas and Savannah and Seattle and Winston-Salem. And Saturday, you had mass shootings in Cincinnati and Austin. And Trump comes along and he says, you know, the way to solve this says, you know, if if you're going to do gun control, you're going to have to do car control. Because cars kill people, too. And in fact, a car did kill a person at a protest this weekend, although it appears that this was a person who was drunk as opposed to a person who was intent on homicide. But they're still trying to figure that out. So, yeah, okay. If cars can kill people, guns can kill people, then, you know, using Trump's logic, why don't we just regulate guns the same way we do cars? Very simple. Very simple. You've got to have a shooter's license, you've got to have insurance, and it's got to be registered. Straightforward stuff. Ami in uh, New Orleans. Hey, Ami, what's up?
6: I'm calling because I'm a native of Louisiana, and I learned history from the um, colonial settler perspective. But the beautiful thing about me growing up in the early 60s is that we um, they started uh, the Black Panther Party down here in the Desire community about... 67 I was 68, I became a panic Cub, and we learned history from them. My grandfather was a, a mason, a black mason. We learned a lot from him, too. He told us about, he said, God answer those who created him. And the Black Panthers taught us about uh, race being a social construct. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that history teacher. Uh, You have to kind of like go back in history and find out how we get from that point to this point. Yep. And black people in the community is going to have to reach out and teach the children and supplement like we were supplemented through Black Panther Party programs and the all, po- all African political uh, programs that we were in as children, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with the history teacher. And like they say, when the hunter and the hunted be in the forest, the hunter generally win. So the hunter going to tell his story.
2: Yeah, that was Hitler's big thing, you know, the, the, the victors write the history books. Well, you know, that's what Bill Barr said for that matter. But yes, absolutely. And the Panthers did extraordinary work with their educational outreach back in the day. And the Pan-African movement and, and, and others today are doing extraordinary work with young people today. And we need to be encouraging it. We need to be supporting it. Uh, we need to be honoring it.
6: They have this by Dr. Pick. We execute the brutes. That should be sent into the schools or at a community center because it's an excellent documentary on this history here in America and what happened.
2: Okay. I will check it out. Amy, thank you very much for the call. Stephen in Cobb County, Georgia. Hey, Stephen, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Great. Uh, I used to live in Cobb County. You did? Yeah, in yeah,
3: so I, was like, I, was like, I was a little worried about when I heard you talking about Cobb County,
2: the unarmed
3: black man being shot in this house. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
2: I'd have to pull it? the story out to see exactly where he was. He was in suburban Atlanta, I, just as I say, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was Cobb I, County I, or not. But I
3: thought the family talked about Cobb County in particular.
2: They, they, they may have. I'm sorry. I, I can't specifically verify. But, okay. But I'm
3: just saying that in 2020, mm-hmm. we had a major change in Cobb County. county comm- the chair of the county commission, which runs the county, is now the chairman of the black woman, Democrat and there's there are five members of the chair of, of the of the commission right and three of the, three of them are now democrat
2: stephen thank you for the update i've got to, i've got to move along but thank you very much it's great to hear from you and uh, you know somebody from from miles stomping grounds jonathan in portland speaking to my current stomping grounds hey jonathan what's on your mind today
7: i think the single most important fact to understanding slavery and understanding the civil war is the simple fact that Slavery was so endemic that in many states in the South, slaves actually outnumbered white people, specifically in South Carolina. At least a third of the population were slaves. You had over 4 million slaves in this country. And to say that we had slavery in the North or there's some kind of false equivalency, there were 18 slaves in New Jersey, I mean, at the time of the Civil War. Hmm. And the diabolical thing was that even though slavery had been effectively, importation of slaves had been banned in 1808 the slaves in this country were effectively raised like animals in this country quarter were children an eighth were old people elderly people and it, the economics of it was much the same as today less than one uh, percent of the population owned slaves it was just gaslight. yeah it was
2: it was very much the top one percent and that's you know i you know in fact i write about that in my book the hidden history of american oligarchy how the south in large part because of the invention of the cotton gin in the early 1800s that became ubiquitous across the south by the 1820s only very wealthy plantations could afford a cotton gin which gave them the ability to be literally 50 times more efficient than a plantation that didn't have a cotton gin and as a result, by the, it, this brought about this new aristocracy in the South, in the Old South, by the 1830s and 1840s, to the point where, you know, about a thousand families, more or less, controlled six states and and everything in them. And that uh, it, it, the South had real left altogether being a democracy and had fully embraced oligarchy. And, and uh, what you, I think you could easily argue was a fascist uh, ethno-state uh, form of oligarchy, and that's why they declared war on the rest of America um, because they didn't like this democracy going on to the north, and it was very disruptive to them. And, and uh, you know, uh, not just enslaved people; there were numerous rebellions where poor whites joined joined people who had fled slavery to rebel against that system, and and they were just they were freaking out.
7: The irony of these people
2: that fetishize the
7: Confederate flag is that they don't understand that if the Confederates had won, they would not be U.S. citizens. That's the bizarre irony of it. America in particular, we had 60% of the world slaves in the Western Hemisphere. And I think there's a misperception that slavery ended for some ideological reason. I mean, it did in a sense, but, you know, it was the British that ended slavery long before, and for the simple reason that they couldn't control the business. They couldn't, yeah. they couldn't money yeah, of it. the British anymore. outlawed... So they said, well, if we can't make money, no one will make money.
2: Yeah, they outlawed slavery in, what was it, 1838? It was in the 1830s, wasn't it? It was around uh, the time that John Quincy Adams was president?
7: it escapes the date escapes me at the moment but it yeah. was long before the civil
2: war it might have been yeah it might have been even been earlier than that jonathan thank but, you for the call and thank you for being with us today and for listening to the program and and, and please however you're getting this program whether you know it's a, a non-profit venue they're probably doing fundraising right now help them out if you're listening to us on a for-profit venue uh station call their advertisers and let them know you're listening thank them for the program and for being on the earth and let the station know—it's important stuff. Tag your it.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.